Yeah, so this one worked out alright. We were lucky enough to get into the 3 and d studios. Mandy was up in Preston doing some work and it just worked out that being a 37 degree day, we just popped into the air-conditioned studios there in Preston and recorded in one of the practice studios, so the audio quality is very schmick and it's quite different to the other ones. I'm tossing up now whether to continue on with that outdoorsy vibe with a bit of atmos and the birds chirping or get into a studio and have that nice isolated sound where you can really focus on what's going on in the conversation. So it'll be interesting to hear what people think about that. But in regards to the content, the quality of conversation was great uh, with Mandy. She does a lot of amazing stuff around community with her daughters and her nephew doing traditional dance for openings and for ceremony, as well as the language work that she does at VACL, which is the Victorian Aboriginal Centre for Languages. And yeah, she was an ideal person to pick her brain about the culture down here, uh, you know, being a Wurundjeri or Wurundjeri. That, that's another interesting thing here, uh, just understanding the pronunciations. Uh, so Wurundjeri, I believe, is the proper way to say it. And you'll also notice me getting that wrong, uh, particularly in regards to uh, Wurundjeri and Wurundjeri or Wurundjeri. I think at some point, it's explained so you get to understand the right way to identify these different terms then be able to speak it properly in the future and yeah there's a lot more to learn from Mandy going on with all the amazing research that she's done so she is contactable to find out more or to have her get involved in whatever Wurundjeri or Wurundjeri program you've got going on and Hope you enjoy our chat. I've got connections to several mobs. Um, they're all part of the Kulin, the Central Kulin. So I've got uh, Jaja Wurrung through um, my dad. I've also got Dunwurrung through my dad as well, and Wurundri, Wurundri Willem. And on my mum's side, I've got German. And I guess we tend to know you as a Wurundri woman, a Wurundri singer, dancer. Is there a reason why that one takes precedence over Well, other? when I when I said um, Tanwarang, actually, there's a clan above Tanwarang. It's called Nurai Ilam Warang. That's the actual mob that I'm from. So uh, Wurundjeri itself is patrilineal, so we go through the male. Uh, but when William Barak passed away, he was my third great uncle. His son died uh, when he was 15 um, in the hospital. So the male line would have ended, so Wurundjeri wouldn't have existed. So we've had to go through the female line. So that's the one that I mostly identify as. But I also, with those other connections, I can uh, be part of boards and, and panels and stuff representing them as well. But my main identity is Wurundjeri. Yeah. Mm. I hear Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung interchanged. Yeah. Can you explain yeah, that? Yeah. Well, the central or eastern and they all have uh, Wurrung at the end of their names, or a lot of blackfellas associate or identify with their language. Where Wurundjeri Willem, there's Wurundjeri Balak, they're different actual uh, little clans within the language group. So in the 1800s, there was 18 of 
Wurundjeri left. And so Wurundjeri itself is a clan of the Woiwurrung speakers, but all the others were obliterated. So we were the only one left. So we identify by that clan name. So yeah, we're a little right. bit different to the rest. Yeah, yeah. so it's interesting. And so where is that? In, well, exactly? you've got the basically the Yarra River watershed. So from the, the Great Dividing Range, from around Hillsville, like up sort of where the water flows south or flows down, that's where our land sort of begins um, into the Yarra Valley um, and all the tributaries, you know, from the Yarra um, into Port Phillip Bay and en encompasses Melbourne as well. So we go as far west as the Werribee River, as far east to Mount Borbore um, and Mount Macedon to the north. So we've got a lot of areas that sort of are significant areas like Mount Macedon and Hanging Rock. It sort of, it joins up three of those language groups. So yeah, we're right in the middle of all of those. Mm. I guess you have the five nations of the Kulin. How similar are the languages and the, yep. and the culture of the different Kulin mobs? Well, I try to tell people that they're not actually nations plural. It's nation singular okay. because they're part of one nation. So Kulin or Gulanya means man. And that's hence why all their names end in Wurung or, or Warang. Yep. So say, for example, you talk about Bunwarang, we share 80 to 90% of grammar and language, uh, the Tanwarang as well. And then, but once you sort of head more west, like Botharong and Jajawarang, the languages start to get the word endings that are more associated with the Western Kulin of Western Victoria. So that a lot of the words end in like itch, I-T-J, mm. where we are less likely to use those word endings. So the, the geographic distance between where Wurundjeri is to where um, you say Geelong sort of heading into the Gunditjmara area, it starts to develop into, um, you know, less similarities than with us. So geographic location defines those similarities. Mm. Yeah. So, so for example, like Gunai in Gippsland, we share maybe I think 20% of similarities. Okay. And there's reasons that we do share language that far away because of the mission period where people were taken from Corrindirk to Lake Tyres, to Lake Conda, all the different missions and reserves. So they took their language with them, even though they weren't allowed to speak it, yeah, they right. would still know little bits and pieces. And traditionally you would marry and you would uh, learn your husband's language and speak only your husband's language. So, but you'd still know your, your mother tongue. Yeah. So you'd, it is common to have 10 languages in you, like you could speak them fluently back, way back. Yeah, wow. And so how was the knowledge of these languages kept? Were, were they written down by white fellows well, or like was it passed down well enough through the... I think, I suppose in Victoria and southern states of Australia, a lot of the language that has remained is, you know, swear words or muna or mum, little words like that. Um, that sometimes, a lot of the times, has developed into Aboriginal English, which is a recognised dialect of English. So you may speak, it's almost like speaking English in an Aboriginal accent, but it's a recognised, it's not a, a slang language, it's recognised with its own grammar structure. Um, yeah, so I think the way that it was recorded down for us, because there's at least two generations of my family that weren't allowed to speak and didn't know language, so it was recorded down by mission and reserve managers. Uh, as you go more into, say, Gunditjmara area, it was more uh, written down by the German Lutheran sort of church structure over there. 
But where my family, the majority of my family are from at Corin Dirk, it wasn't a religious based mission. It was more a reserve or a station. But John Green, the manager, was a Christian man, but it wasn't based on a religious structure like the other ones, some of the other ones were. So uh, his wife was a botanist, so she wrote all these words down with their scientific names. So without that, we wouldn't have the names of the plants. Uh, there's a lot of animal names in, in those lists as well. And then eventually over time, I think where I discovered the language, I was working at Galena Beak Living Cultural Centre in Hillsville. And it's sad, sad story about that place. The funding ran out and it closed. But I was, how old was I? 19. And I saw this book and it was Barry Blake. And it was, I think, the dialects of Aboriginal Australia or something it's called. And there was a chapter in there and I got so excited, but I didn't realise it was just a chapter. So I photocopied the whole book, 500 pages, and then realised, oh, it's only the chapter. And I had no idea how to read the words, how to pronounce the words. Uh, like you'd have a word in there and then you'd have like two letters after the word. And then over time, I realised that was the actual source, like Howard or or some like an... Um, an old source reference. So it wasn't part of the actual word. So some of the words I was actually saying with those two letters and I'm like, like Mungo is like the name for, um, I think message stick, but it had HO, which was for Howard. So I'd say Mungo Ho. I'm like, no, that was wrong. So I was very naive to it all. And then I went off um, and had children, worked forever. I've always worked since I was like 13. So I went and had kids, worked there for a couple of years at, at Galena Beak. Then, um, where did I go? I think I went, I went to university and did an archaeology degree over seven years. So that was a lot of the time. And in between there, I was working two jobs at the Koori Heritage Trust as an oral researcher, oral history researcher, uh, CDEP. I did that uh, when my girls were little. Um, yeah, so when they were a little bit bigger, I went and did my university course. Then two weeks after I graduated there, I started working at VACL and stayed there for about five years. And then uh, we, I had the really great opportunity to go overseas with my brother. He got a Churchill Fellowship to research cultural tourism. So I said, you're not going without me and my girls. So we saved up over the year and we went, went with him. And one thing stuck in my mind, the Hawaiian school over there in the 1800s, there was a Hawaiian lady and her husband and that Hawaiian lady saw her culture and language dying. It was getting overridden by the Americans. And she said, I'm not going to allow this to happen. So long story short, she set up this little school to teach Hawaiian studies and culture, ended up being one of the world's richest private schools. And they fund all these other projects out and about. And we met with one of the teachers and she said, you can't fight the system from the outside. You need to fight it from the inside. So the university, you know, institutional racism and all that kind of stuff, policy change, you need to come from underneath and fight it from the inside. Everyone's got their PhD. Go and do it. And I was like, oh, PhD? Uh, don't know. Oh, I don't know. But then it just stuck in my mind, stuck, stuck. And then as we were away, there was an email that was sent from Deakin University about connecting to country when you live off country. And I'm like, oh, should I? You know, it's in Geelong. But the professor, uh, David Jones is his name, he said, look, we'll set up an office for you at Dandenong. Um, he made it possible that I could do it because it takes a long time to get to Geelong. And 
that's what I'm doing at the moment. So all of that career, I suppose, in all Aboriginal organisations, I've always had that urge to learn and research my language. And VACL was the big stepping stone, the major stepping stone in doing that because the community linguist there, Chris Ira, she helped me understand the tools to be able to put the grammar with the words. Because if you've got a dictionary in front of you, you can't learn a language from a dictionary because it's single words. So she helped me understand the word structure and the word endings and what to go on where. And I can translate things properly now as, as I'm speaking English now, I can do it properly. And that's enabled me to further my journey into, like I started with song nursery rhyme translations and things. And along the way with my little dance group, I said, well, you know, there's some dance groups are awesome out there, but they don't have any singing in it, which really let them down, I thought. So started to write songs about, basically about what I paint about too, being an artist for oh, 25 years or something like that, about animals, country, ancestors, family and plants like Murnong and things like that. And it's developed into now where I'm sort of stepping out of the um, spotlight there, I suppose, in like creating all of the dances and songs where my girls are old enough now to take a little bit of leadership there and they are starting to create the dances like my older daughter Dana and the my younger daughter Kaya is actually like I'll write the songs and she writes too but then she was like I'll sing it and then she'll take it away when she goes to her dad's on weekends she'll she goes oh I've um, worked it up a bit and she sent it to me on the messenger and I'm like wow and it was the jury jury song about our, our namesake the dance dancing uh, the dance group's namesake and she's got more of a I don't know that much about music terminology but she's got more of a um like a sweet sound in her voice where I'm just bang out with it she she sounds really lovely intonation maybe is that the mm. word I don't know but yeah, maybe timbre yeah, yeah, like a bit of a flutter in her voice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so she's taken that on and she loves, you know, not sitting back and she likes getting out there and involved and making change and for everyone and, you know, making Victorian Aboriginal culture out there and she's very, well, they both are very proud of putting it out there to everyone uh, and I suppose one example of that would be Tandem this year. And the previous years too, where we were under the artistic control uh, by Ilbidri, and then over the years it was sort of talked about that the Kulin actually would start creating the dances and the structure themselves without getting any professional singers or choreographers in. Mm -hmm. So over those years, this year was the first year that we, it was Kulin controlled in all, all aspects in the creative design of it and I got Lou Bennett in to help me we found this old uh, William Barrack recording of a song there was about three or four of them and one of them was the Corroboree song it was called and I got the linguist at Vackle to translate it she sent me some paperwork on um, Stephen Morey I think his name was he translated it and what it occurred to me and Lou at the same time that it's actually a song line for the wetlands of Victoria. So having that archaeology and ge ge 
geology background, I kind of knew about all the wetlands that stretch right across Victoria. So you've got the, the pelican, there's two words, Burndungala and Wadjil, uh, the two names for pelican. So Wadjil is the Woiwurrung name and Burndungala is Western Coolin. So obviously, you know, when like Lake Eyre fills, the pelicans just all migrate there and we just, that's their instinct. So they travel a long distance. And then you've, so we, they're the males in our story, in our creation stories. And then you've got the uh, Gunawara and Genanwal, the duck. The, the duck is Genanwal and Gunawara is a black swan and they're female in our creation story. So we adapted that song into the roles of the men dancing and the women dancing. So my nephew Damo helped the men dance strong and stomp strong. And my girls did the, the female version and taught the women how to dance. So it was more of a instead of a performance as such, because that's what it's kind of been over the years, over five years, I think it's been, mm. it was more of a ceremonial chant uh, and really making Aboriginal culture present, relevant and in your face in Melbourne where you, you think there's buildings and everything, but we look at it differently. It's got all these different layers uh, of country. Like we've got country that you would associate with what you're standing on on the ground with your feet. There's about six layers of country that are all associated with language and culture and dance and all of that stuff. So you've got the um, Bik Ut is the country that's underneath the ground where everything begins. Life begins under the ground. And then you've got the Banyot is the water country. And then you've got the Bik Dui is the, the ground that you walk on with your feet. You feel it with your feet, put the mud between your toes. Then you've got the uh, Wudu Wudu Dui is the... Uh, wind that we feel so we it's sort of going through our body our feet below our feet and then the, we can feel the wind around our bodies then you've got the um oh so we've got the murungmut uh dui that's the wind country and then you above that you've got the wuru wuru dui is the wind uh is the sky country so all these layers are, are connected you can't miss one or else it will be an incomplete picture and then above the, the sky country you've got Tarangalk which is the cosmos all the stars that are linked to all, all our creation stories so you can see all elements of that in dance language and song and culture and going back to the language like definition of certain things all this cultural knowledge is embedded in names like place names like Turak is Reedy Swamp you know like but Tarangalk is well, Darang is like tree and Gulk is stick and Biik is country. So Bundrul's home, our creator, is Darangulk Biik is the forest country above the clouds. So what we, we see physically is reflected up in the sky. So it's all one, one element, but all different elements inside it. Yeah, so how do you know all this stuff? Where did you get this knowledge? Well, like I said, there was a couple of generations that weren't didn't have the opportunities to get access to knowledge. Me and my brother are the same. He's just a male version of me. We decided we grew up in a house full of love and support, mum being German, dad being Aboriginal. But there was always one thing missing and it sort of left a hole in our identity. And our, me and my brother are the same at school. We were targeted for being Aboriginal. So the journey of research uh, at finding out as much as we could, no matter where we were, we'd always try to grasp onto any knowledge that we could find. And it's all self-driven and all self-taught. Yeah. 
Yeah, wow. And then you write your own songs for your dance group with your girls, and what do you choose to write about? Well, like in the name of our dance group, the Jitty Jitty, the Willy Wagtail, like it's that, like, a, yeah, cultural knowledge embedded in names. Like Jitty Jitty is the sound it makes when it's dancing. And a lot of the dancers are honouring those creatures, um, the creation spirits, but the Jitty Jitty one in particular, we looked at the bird, we saw how he danced, we saw the, like he's got these little white stripes on his cheeks that look like ochre. So in the words, it reflects what the observations have been. Like um, in the start of it, it's about um, he's come from a long time ago to teach us how to dance because he's a little dancing bird. He's taught us how to decorate our bodies with the white ochre on our face. Uh, he's taught us how to embrace his dances and teach others. So the dance itself has my two girls at the front doing the specific moves, while all the other dancers in the back are doing a, a totally different move. But it's a symbolic way of showing that the two girls at the front are the jitty jitties teaching the other younger ones. And not necessarily younger, we've got older women in there too that are just new to dance um, and new to language and culture generally. So the th way that that came about is was Tandarum again. It's been a really good stepping stone and it's been a snowball effect as well. It's really helped the communities gain cultural confidence. So there was a few family members that wanted to be involved because I nag them every year, come and dance with us, come and dance with us. Some didn't want to dance, but they chose to sing, which was amazing. So we've got three families, groups represented in Wurundjeri and all three families were represented this year. And... Um, I think by engaging that teaching and learning to other Wurundjeri people, we've got a much bigger dance group now. And we've actually been really, really busy with our bookings. So there was one time when a lot of things were happening and my cousin said, oh, there's this dance booking for this special event. And I said, oh, I can't do it. I'm doing something else. So what we've had to do is record the songs because they know the dancers now and they went, to this event with my brother, brother doing the cultural speaking and welcome and all that, they did it to my recording. So it's really awesome because that means they're confident enough to get out there and show the world that they're kind of, you know, I've been sitting and working in Aboriginal organisations or whatever, but now I'm out here with my children, with my nieces and dancing with them. Um, it enables them to like some of the younger kids said, we're, we're not dancing unless they, their mum dances. So they forced their mums to dance with them. And they've come back to me and said that they go to school and they talk about what they do. They talk about the dances that they do. They talk about Tandarum. And it breaks down those, you know, stereotypical, uh, possibly racist structures that are in the schoolyard by making Aboriginal culture between the kids something that's not scary or different but beautiful. And it gives them confidence to speak. Um, they've really some of the kids have really blossomed. One in particular was very, I suppose, she wasn't out there with the cultural stuff, but now she's like everything's culture um, at school, at home. She's very intelligent for her age, and it's just allowed those kids to step up and and be proud and not be ashamed. I remember growing up in school, if you got picked on for something you wouldn't make the world know that 
that thing about you, you'd keep it to yourself. So that's what I had to do at school to survive in my head and same with my brother. But then as soon as we left high school, my brother's 18 months older than me. So when we both were like left, we went and did a course at Monash at, at Churchill. Or I think it's Federation Uni now. And it was Koori Studies. And my this is something that sticks in my mind. I had to do a biography. And I just remember thinking, I know exactly where I'm from. I know my family connections. I know my country. I'm very privileged. So why am I hiding behind all of that to fit in with people I don't even like? So I wrote that and um, from that day forward, I've hit the ground running and tried to learn as much as I can. Uh, Mum was very, very supportive. Dad was supportive as well, but he worked quite a lot. So we were old enough to get cars and jobs and stuff. So we both just decided that's what we wanted to do to fill that gap. Yeah. What I find interesting is, I guess, that balance between uh, ceremony and performance. Tandarum is a bit of a balance of the two. I do see you quite often dancing as part of openings and as, as part of cultural days or like Dreamtime at the G and all of that. Then you also have this other this other thing that you do. I happen to see some photos on Facebook of yeah. mob out in the bush, bush yeah, yeah. Uh, doing dances, which I guess it's not necessarily foreign audience. Is it yeah, just well, what I've always been an advocate for is getting out there and showcasing a glimpse of culture by dancing and singing and all that. But to keep our community strong, we need to have ceremony and dance and stuff away from the spotlight. It's not about Aboriginal. Aboriginality isn't about the spotlight. Culture isn't about the spotlight, but we need to still make our presence known in the city. And it's called the Murum Turukuruk ceremony. And we found a reference. Oh, I found it way. Oh, it just, it's a circle, you know, in Blackfella communities, you sort of meet everyone through your life and you catch up with them again years later. And the archaeology teacher back then when I went to uni, when I was 18, she wrote a book and it was Friends of the Merry Merry or something like that. And she got me to do the artwork in it. And in there, there was a reference to the Murum Turukuruk and, and Murum or Maram means body, Turu or turu, Turak, the reeds, and Gruk is the word ending for female. So it's a coming-of-age ceremony for young girls. So we've incorporated the Welcome Baby to Country as well because we did one three years ago and it was the first time it has been done for over 180 years. So we had, I think, all the most of the Wurundjeri teenagers came. There was about 20. And we also incorporated a few women and young girls that didn't have opportunities in, in their communities to be part of any kind of ceremony. So they came and did it as well. And then... We taught them the roles and responsibilities of being young Aboriginal women and then the following year they came back to help the next lot of girls come through. So last year we had more children and babies come because all the girls were around the same age and we all we did them already. So what we're considering is doing every two years because there's a lot of girls that aren't quite old enough yet but in a couple of years they'll, they'll be old enough. So we make sure that we firmly culturally ground them there and so they're not like, oh, yeah, I dance for public events and, you know, I'm Aboriginal. It's more about that cultural uh, knowledge being learnt with the aunties, with cultural leaders, community leaders that aren't quite elders and getting them to 
make all of their dance attire, make a possum skin belt, and if they muck up, that belt gets taken away from them and they have to earn it back. So it's about being that parent, surrogate parent for the girls, but that's the traditional way of doing it. The aunties would help raise the girls and the uncles would help raise the boys. So it's still being done, but in a different... Oh, it's still being done in the same way, but there's dis different circumstances where a lot of my family uh, around Hillsville southeastern suburbs and there's a, a mob up on north of Melbourne, uh, Whittlesea kind of area. So it's three family groups and we're kind of, the Terex, us, are down sort of the southeast. The Wandons are in Hillsville and the Nevins are sort of more um, the north, Whittlesea, north of Melbourne area. So, yeah, I think um, it's amazing that we can, are able to take the girls to do that, to allow them to grow up and say, oh, I don't want them to grow up and say, I don't know my language or my culture or my ceremony. They, as soon as they're little babies, they know. And that's something that I missed out on as a young girl. And I don't want it to happen to the next generations. I got my girls through on the first one, or Dana um, on the very first one that we did over in Warrnambool. And then I did my second daughter, but then I didn't want to stop there just with my daughters. I didn't want to be a big shot and just do mine. So me and Annie Di and her sister, um, Annie Irene, have supported me the whole way. Uh, I organise it all. I, I get all the materials and apply for funding and all that, and they come and do the ceremony. So I always can rely on them. Even then, you know, when they're busy or they're not feeling well or whatever, they are always helping me do it. So I can see the benefits in the girls. It's amazing. They just, just, they just bloom. Yeah. I guess you were saying, so it's a Wurundjeri focus, yeah. but then it's a little bit open to other people who yeah. aren't Wurundjeri as well. Well, we're kind of possibly going to do another one for um, any Aboriginal girls that are around, live locally. Even we've had a, a, a lady come down from Sydney just reconnecting to her family. She's through the Nevin, so she is Wurundjeri. But she came down and she was so ov overwhelmed emotionally by it all that she could be part of a ceremony because she's in Sydney, she's disconnected. Um, so I think, yeah, being able to offer that to people that haven't got access to it is so strengthening for them, but also for us to be able to give that to them. And just on the way here, in the last couple of days, we've had people contact me with, for girls that are in care uh, that want to be involved in cultural activities. So I've just said, bring the girls along to our dances and if they want to, that's how we learn and teach the other girls. We just bring, like NADOC week was a baptism of fire for one of our dancers. She'd never danced before, but I said, come to the dances. These are our dances that they're easy to do, but then you freak out a little bit if there's a big crowd and, and all that. But she, she got it within a couple of days and now she does all the dances. So these girls that are in care can be part of it as well. So it is Wurundjeri, but we open our arms to young girls that don't have the opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with your taking the lead on a lot of these cultural activities and is there somewhere where you get your guidance from in regards to knowing that you're going through the right protocols, that you're doing things the right way culturally? And I believe I'm doing it correctly, but in every community, you may have people that are a bit sceptical or non-supportive, which I've had all my whole life, so I've grown a thick skin. 
and they don't realise it just makes me want to do it more. And I can see, like I said, see the benefits in the young girls and how it helps them grow as young women. No one's going to tell me that I can't do it. Um, and if I've got the support of those two elders, that's enough. I can't go out and do the ceremonies myself. I'm not an elder. But if those aunties weren't there, I, would, I couldn't do it. Um, but thanks to those two aunties, we can. Mm. Getting back to Tanderam, where there is that balance of ceremony and performance, and I guess over the years it has changed a little bit, where do you find that balance? As a performance, it's, it's amazing for spectators to watch. And I think it's an integral part to have the narration happening. And through the years, like at times, me and the girls will just sit there and watch every year's one, uh, one after another and realise the very first one was slow, the next one was a bit quicker. Um, there was not much narration in the first one. And I'm watching it as an observer because I wasn't part of the first one. I'm thinking, because I work in tourism, you know, like tours and um, I work in everything. <laughs> Basically, it feels like everything. So I sort of get my head around a lot of different things. So I try to look at things from their perspective. And the first one didn't enable them to under, fully understand the story because they, the narration uh, didn't describe it in depth for them. And I'm thinking there's a lot of international tourists that stay in the CBD because we were talking to the Tourism Victoria mob and a couple of years ago and they said the majority stay in Melbourne now. They may go to the sanctuary or whatever. But you need to make that culture relevant and present in the city, like I said earlier. So it's developed over the years where the narration has improved. The dancers have been developed by the mobs and been assisted with professional singers and choreographers. But this year, the narration, I pretty much 95% um, wrote the narration of everything and sort of looked at last year's one and changed it up. I didn't want it to be the same. Um, the stories behind it all uh, and the Wurundjeri part of it. So the other mobs, they kept their narration. I didn't touch their narration for their songs or anything. And I think, I believe it was a good balance between performance and ceremony because the first dances were a welcome dance. So that is obviously for an audience. And then, but it also has that traditional cultural route to it as well but I think the finale dance need, needed to be a chant where I've seen a lot of dancers around the place and some of them like especially the men they don't sing as such but they have like a chant and a beat and that grunt which I won't do because I'm not a, not a man but the, a group of them doing that like you get like goosebumps watching how strong their presence is and I thought we need the men to do that and we need the women to dance there. They sort of float across the sand. They've got a, that different style. And I believe that needed to be done this year to have that balance between the, the ceremony and the performance. Because obviously in the middle of the city, you're getting people coming in to watch a performance, but I don't like to make it simply a performance. It has to have the, all that cultural stuff embedded in it. Mm. Yeah. I guess with Tandarum and with other things that you do with the Wurundjeri traditional games and such, there is that element of opening up to the audience and then having them be a bit more involved in 
dance and some traditional practice. Mm. How do you navigate the balance between sharing culture but then also keeping it for Wurundjeri people only? Mm. I think if you're a person inviting someone else to do something, then your arms are open to sharing with them. But if people are, you know, appropriating your songs or your dances, then that's a, a no-go. But an example of sharing culture is uh, enabling people in the audience to join in dancing or whatever, all the traditional games, getting them to get that knowledge first and then have a go at throwing a spear and boomerang, but getting that cultural um, understanding first. An example of we danced with the dancing, we... I talked about the Jiri Jiri dance to the audience of the Oz Dance Awards at the Art Centre. And we went in there and they sort of, we sort of talked with the organisers and said, oh, well, how can we get audience participation? And I talked about, you know, it's a women's group. I can only talk to the women and show the women and stuff like that. So what we ended up doing, we got all the women to stand up in the audience and we got the men to do the beat with their hands and all the women in the audience did the dance moves to the jitty jitty dance. And it was amazing because everyone was laughing, getting it wrong, but I made sure I told them the significance and the meaning of it before we did that. So I think that's where the balance is struck, where if someone says, oh, we're dancing, I'll come and do a kangaroo, then there's no cultural knowledge transfer there. You've got to include them in the entirety of the story, not just I'll come and dance an emu. Mm -hmm. um, you connect that emu to a, a story. We've got a story about the emu sisters, um, the stars and things like that. So you can talk about the creation stories that are related to that particular animal and then you can invite them up to dance. So I think that's where that balance is struck. Yep. And then what about language? I've heard in some schools they teach Woiwurrung. Yep. Yeah, just wondering about your feelings of other people who aren't Woiwurrung. Yeah, yeah in not even Aboriginal speaking Woiwurrung language? Well, there was a girl that came up to me at the Murnong Harvest in Coburg a few weeks ago and she came up and said, um, what did she say? She said, Womanjika, um, Bagaruk, Marumbik, Marnang, Binjuru. She said, um, hello, I'm a girl and I'm seven years old. And I'm, whoa! And I said, you're from Thornbury Primary School, aren't you? And she goes, yes, because I started that up. Oh, I worked on the um, the organising group for setting up that Woiwurrung language program. So we had a Lote teacher, a, an Aboriginal teacher, Phil Cooper Jr. We had a linguist from VAI and myself. So we worked every Monday to work the program out, create the resources, and we taught the kids. Uh, Phil taught the kids and I stepped in when he couldn't. So by him working with me, because he's not Wurundjeri, I, he got the go-ahead to do that because he was talking through me, sort of like I was giving him the, the stuff to teach. If he went and did it himself, um, obviously he'd get in trouble or anyone else. But when that girl came up to me and spoke to me like that, I'm thinking... A lot of my mob don't know, well, a lot, the majority of the girls, kids in general, don't, wouldn't know what the hell she's saying and she's speaking language to us. So I understand after all that process that other people are learning language and it's, 
like when you're living in a community, you can't sort of like when it's dispersed as well, you can't learn language easily that way. But if you're at school in a classroom every day or every week, you've got that structure and you'll learn it. So they've got the really good opportunity to learn it, but my community don't. So I didn't, I don't know how I felt about that. It's like, I want my, my kids and my community to be able to speak like that. So there needs to be something set up to, and I kind of worked on a little, few little things to help my community, like a phrase book, but that sort of fell through. Um, so it didn't stop me either. I started up a little language page. People would request, like just Wurundjeri members said, oh, what's the word for this? Can you translate this? So it's helping them if they're interested, because I find some aren't, like in any community. So, um, yeah, anyone else non-Wurundjeri learning the language and especially teaching it, teaching it is a no-go, but learning it and speaking it before my community, it doesn't sit well with me. Um, she was a beautiful little girl and it wasn't her fault or anything, but the program went for about three years and then it all sort of disbanded, but they've still got the resources there. So another Aboriginal teacher still teaches the stuff that's already there. Um, I would love language to be taught in every school, but really there's me, uh, Matthew Gardner, my cousin, and Rebecca Axford. She sort of works with the kinders, um, teaching them little stories and, and phrases. Matthew works... I don't know if he's still there at Melton, um, uh, one of the schools over there, but there's only three of us. And I don't know if Matthew's still doing as much in language as he used to. So it's hard to get language out to the wider community, let alone within our own community. So there's only th three of us. Yeah, and I guess it must be quite hard to get people interested in speaking a language when it's not so commonly spoken. Uh, yeah. I guess learning French, you can go to France, mm. uh, France or watch a French movie or something. I'm just trying to understand the benefits of yeah. learning Wurundjeri. Well, I think Thornbury Primary had the highest Aboriginal student numbers. So it was an obvious choice that Aboriginal language would be taught because another area where schools struggle is Aboriginal art. Um, I was contacted by, I think it was Zart, they're a really well-known art company. They want me to come in and do an art workshop with teachers because working in the education kind of area as well, the majority of teachers struggle to know what to teach about Aboriginal art in the classroom. They'll just get it off the internet. Um, so I think, yeah, I've lost my train of thought there. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's right. Um, yeah. yeah, just in regards to the benefits of maybe not only Wurundjeri learning Woiwurrung language, oh. but then perhaps other people... Once. Oh, it breaks down the barriers of something that people may look at Aboriginal people that live in the city as a relic culture, as a culture that's in the past. So the same with language and that art thing is, uh, I think it enables... Like the kids go home, they walk home with their parents and they tell their parents what that bush or that animal is called in language. They create little songs, like two-word songs with a little beat to it and things like that. So I think it enriches the children's understanding of Aboriginal culture, especially in the city, and if it's a multicultural school as well, they picture Aboriginal people as living in the desert, um, you know, Uluru, all that kind of stuff. They don't see Aboriginal culture in the city. So it enables them to understand that it's still here. 
still practiced, but it's not as visible as what, you know, Tourism Australia sort of portray Aboriginal culture as is in the desert and, and things, yeah. Mm. Something that I find would be difficult in re-establishing language is finding that balance of there being words that you want to be able to speak just like mob spoke before mm. whitefellas got here, but then also acknowledging the fact that it would have changed and I even notice just around town here there can be different pronunciations for... Bunjil, Bunjil, yeah, Wamajika, Wamajika, yeah. yeah, different. It's like tomato, tomato, castle, castle. Yeah, so yeah. how important is it to you know, have that specific pronunciation? Well, I have to myself, stop myself, because I've been saying Wurundjeri this whole time, I've got to say, what on Jetty? Uh, Annie Dye, I work closely with her in a lot of different things, or she's at the same events as me. So a lot of people will do acknowledgements and welcomes, like I um, acknowledge the elders past and present and all that robotic kind of acknowledgement and welcome. So Annie Dye's working on trying to go back to the old pronunciations and tra translate that um, typical one into language. So she's still doing it that way, but she's adding language here and there. And I notice she pulls herself up too when she says bundle, she'll, she'll change. Oh, sorry, no, bunjil. So we've just got to train ourselves to stop speaking Aboriginal language English way. And I could imagine that there are also certain sounds that don't come up in the English language. How do you work that out when you're trying to write? When the language was written down, all these different people, European, German, all different nationalities would come and gather, travel around and gather language words. So for Wurundjeri or Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, we had all these different sources and then they would put them together and we had a German um, linguist as well, um, Louise Herkes. So there's all these different European ways of listening and hearing sounds and how they would write it down. So sometimes you'd have 150 different ways of spelling one word. So it's really like a simple way to work out a complex uh, structure is you just do a table, like a like a um, like a crossword sort of grid, and you put the sound of each word underneath, like W. Then you'd have the Woi. Then you'd have the W, like for Woi Wurung, Woi Wurung, and then you'd work out. Oh, okay, the majority have an NG at the end, but there's a couple that don't. Um, obviously, the W is the sound that everyone's hearing, but the in between sounds, people are writing it differently. So then when you analyse all those differences, you come up with the spelling that represents more accurately what the sound would have been. If you think back when men would record language, because a lot of the women's stuff was not recorded down because it was men recording men. Uh, a lot of the ceremony for women wasn't recorded down and dance because it was you know, women's business. So you can imagine someone recording an old man, uh, especially if they had a cold or if they were missing a tooth, the sound would come out different to what their, the, the actual word is as well. So there's all these different hurdles you have to overcome. And I did a, a Watharong app, language app and one of the elders, uh, Bert, Uncle Bert, came in and the word was thark, T-H-A-R-K, but he was missing a tooth. So it sounded like F. So you could see how the words, yeah, it depends what, what's in your mouth, um, the shape of the inside of your mouth as well. A lot of people have got like a, 
like an archway in the top of their mouth where me, I, I have this starts to be an archway, but then it loops down and I've got this big like bone in the top of my mouth and I don't know why it's there. Dad's got it. So it must be, it's obviously from dad's side of the family, but that um, changes the way I say things too. So there's a lot of uh, lip sounds, nasal sounds. So if your nose is blocked, it's really hard to do those sounds. There's a lot of, I don't really know all the linguistic terminology, but there's one word I, description I do remember is retroflex. So retro is in the past, in the back. So you've got to do an R, N sound together, but point your tongue backwards and that's the sound. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard you, you know, yeah. in, in some of the, these words. Yeah. Can you make that sound again? Um, so for girl, mum, mum, dick. All right. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to practice that. Yeah, and there's no like T sound, like the, like this and the. It's more of a da, like you point your tongue, push your tongue on your teeth and you say da, like, um, like kids would say uh, this rather than this. Maybe that might explain the two spellings of uh, Wathurung. Yeah, Wathurung uh, and Wathurung. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a TH, TH. D, H, um, the G and the K, they're all interchangeable. Like you'll hear gunai or kernai. It's the same word, but people have chosen to identify or write down the K version. Some have chosen the G version, but it's a sound in between. It's gunai. So how do you write? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So people, people's choice to how they want to write it, an oral language, that's the difficulty. It's oral language. So I don't sort of teach my girls how to write the words down or just like songs, like nursery rhymes and things. Kids learn from songs. So they know how to say certain words just from hearing it. Mm. And just before we move on, I'll just double check with you. So, uh, uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the welcome is. I can explain the word because yeah. this is where sometimes people, the, pr the pronunciation. So it's three parts to the word. So woman means come, G means I'm asking you to come, and ka is purpose. So when you break it up into those three words, it's woman gika. So it's not woman jika or, or it's woman, woman jika. Okay. Yeah, woman jika. Sorted. <laughs> okay, now I'm wanting to be able to sing in language and be able to perform in Aboriginal languages. I live in Melbourne. I've been here for 11 years and have no intention of moving anytime soon. In wanting to perform language on Wurundjeri country through my grandparents' mobs from uh, Yorta Yorta and uh, Gamilaroi, but then I'm down here in Melbourne. So what language should I be singing on Wurundjeri country? Woiwurrung. Woiwurrung, yeah. yeah. So if you wanted to work on a song and um, sing it publicly and stuff, work with a Woiwurrung specialist <laughs> um, to not say to me, uh, Mandy, can you translate this, then take it away and write it and sing it. it. You know what the process would be. You'd work on something, you'd get it translated, then you'd work, um, you'd talk through the whole process, through the whole process, like... Um, not me necessarily writing the tune or, or anything of that sort, but um, the language side of it. 
um, like all that cultural knowledge in certain words and, and things um, and work to, so you're not out, because there was an example of um, a famous Australian singer. Uh, the song was written, he performed it, but then he requested that he could perform it and earn money from it. So the board, uh, not, not Wadanjeri, someone else, uh, they said, um, no, we don't want to, people to make profit from language. So different mobs have different protocols there. I can't speak on behalf of Wadanjeri Council either on that. Um, but me, like, me being Wadanjeri would enable me to work on projects collaboratively with artists because I don't need permission to speak my language. Uh, a project that's coming up next year with uh, Lou Bennett is at the Abbotsford Convent. We're going to be working on these soundscapes, like a tour kind of thing through the grounds of the convent when she recovers and have song and language and, and that in there. But she's working with me, so it's all good. Um, and I think the whole project was approved uh, by the council anyway. But, yeah, working alongside the person that specialises in that language, I think, is the key. Mm. Yeah. And when you perform on other people's country, singing in Woiwurrung, are there particular protocols that you have to follow before well, you...? Well, um, we dance at Rainbow Serpent Festival for the last few years, um, but I've also got connections to Jaja Woiwurrung there, so it, it's fine, but I always acknowledge the people and thank them for allowing us to dance and sing on their country. Like up at Dance Rights, I acknowledge the Gadigal. And out of, I was quite surprised. There was about, there was 18 dance groups, a lot of Torres Strait groups, a few mixed groups, a lot of women groups with a lot of numbers in the groups, like 20 to 30. We were a really small group. And I was the only one that gave the traditional custodians a gift. And I was quite surprised at that. Like, oh, and uh, wrote a, Rhoda Phillips, is it? Rhoda yeah, Roberts. Yeah, Rhoda Roberts. Yep. Um, I emailed and said, oh, I want to give a gift. Is there any opportunities to do this? And she goes, oh, well, maybe before the finale or, you know, the finals or whatever. And, um, yeah, I was quite shocked that I was the only one that gave a gift. Okay. Well, so it was just a possum skin thanking them for allowing us to dance on their country and stuff. But another thing that surprised me, there was no... Gadigal elders there. I said, oh, is there any Gadigal elders here I can present this to? And there was none. So it made me think, oh. Okay. It was a bit strange. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, no like, Gadigal people. Like, I put it out there for a couple of minutes and nah. So I just gave it to the judges. Is that because yeah. there aren't any around? Or? I think it, it made me think, um, I don't know what, Rhoda's uh, mob is, I'm not sure. Uh, Bunjalung, I think. Oh, see, I'm not sure, like, made me think, were they involved in the process or, yeah, I'm not sure of the st mm. stats of the population either, so I'm not quite sure there. I just thought it was unusual. Yep. Yeah. Because I've never heard that they're not around. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you hear Tassie all the time, but there's still descendants, you know, of Tassie. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was quite strange. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. And I guess going up there and seeing a whole lot of mob dancing from all different parts of the country, was there something that you found unique about your own dance that you were able to bring to the cultural landscape of Australia? 
I think we were the first Victorian representatives, but I saw uh, Wayne Thorpe there too. So um, this was the first time they had Victorians represented. And a lot of the, I think the difference between our performance and everyone else's is I talk a lot and I had to get up and explain very quickly, not like my usual ones, and say this is um, the significance of this dance. But I focused more on we were nearly gone in the 1800s, 18 of us left, we're still here, we're still strong and we're representing Victoria. So really like getting the crowd pumped up to make them think, oh, wow, you know, Victorian culture isn't gone. People will say your oh, language is dead. If, you, if something's dead, you can't ever wake it up. So you just say it's sleeping and we're waking it up. So I think that that was uh, a bit of a difference where everyone else had or lived in communities, remote communities, or had that opportunity to have it embedded since birth, where we, myself, has sort of come into this part of my life in a later part of my life. And you could see the strength in everyone. Um, you could see it in us as well. So we weren't up there sort of doing everything half-hearted or just sort of shuffling through the sand. We did a like a strong performance equal to, to the rest. But some of them, they were amazing. The, I think the Queensland mob won and how they won, I think they got... They all did shake a leg really fast, like almost like brrr, real quick. And then they joined up. All the men joined up and they'll do an eel or something, the one in the front. And then about 10 of them joined up from the shoulders or the hips and did shake a leg forward like a big serpent. I'm like, whoa. So that was different to our one because we had just the women. But yeah, we, we so want to get more of our mob up there to represent with more numbers. So yeah, I think being that small number... Like we had all the different ages um, and the youngest was six. So, yeah, they, they enjoyed watching everyone else. But, yeah, everyone was very strong and very cultural. Yeah. Mm. So I so said from one city, capital city, to the other capital city, yep. <laughs> Sydney. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious as to where you strike the balance and where you decide whether it's appropriate and not appropriate to use didgeridoo or yudaki with performances? Oh, yeah. yeah, well, as you know, I've got Damo, my nephew, playing it, but he's got permission from the one of the custodians of it to play it with us. So that's one error I did in Sydney. I forgot to, because I was like, thought I have to talk quick, I'll talk too much. I forgot to actually say that. And Damo said, I felt a little bit uncomfortable because you didn't say that because everyone knows that, yeah, it's not from Victoria, but because he's got that permission... He, he feels culturally safe to play it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but up there I should have said it, but I was just all hyped up about it. It was just awesome up there. Yeah, like yeah. just meeting everyone and sitting with them on the bleacher things. And I said, oh, where are you from? Oh, we're from Melbourne. And just worked out that some of us knew each other and some were Gunditjmara from Victoria, but dancing for the Queensland Melbourne. It was just really welcoming that way. Yeah. Mm. When you're working on language and I guess you're doing work with young mob and sharing culture with everyone. Is there a dream that you have going into the future, maybe generations into the future, in regards to Woiwurrung and Wurundjeri culture being used and being a part of the landscape amongst Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people? Something that's starting to change is that, that culture shift of um, including Aboriginal culture, moral 
past the tokenistic, oh, let's put an artwork here and leave it like, you know, the common ground or Birung Ma, beautiful artworks, but there's no signage. So things are starting to change now with my course. I'm under architecture and built environment. I'm in that school. So we've just put a proposal in for the uh, Lake Windery Park in Ballarat, exactly on that topic of the visual landscape, but also having that cultural landscape embedded in planning rather than we're going to plonk a sculpture just there. It's, it's, it's actually before artists get commissioned. It's the planning of that area saying, right, this has got to include this, this, this. So we've just got it. So we haven't planned it out properly, but that is starting to change and have that cultural context. And um, even with me working on that, I can't go and say, oh, well, I think this should involve this thing themed on men and themed on women and children or something like that because it's not my country there I have those cultural protocols that I have to follow I have to if I want language think that language is a key which I put in my proposal I think it's one of the major things I have to get permission to even put that in there or suggest that I have to get permission that's like with anyone like a piece of artwork you can't copy the artwork and sell it as yours because it's copyright breach that intellectual property that cultural knowledge found in language can't be used just because you're an aboriginal person so the design concept for that particular park will involve i don't like the word collab uh consultation because it means you you speak about it you do it and then you show them at the end but collaboration is from the beginning before it even starts through the beginning, through the process to the end, and more importantly, the process after it's completed. So, yeah, collaboration is the key uh, for anything. And myself, I need to go through those protocols of permission. Like even in my PhD paper, it's on Gunditjmara people, so I'm going to have to start interviewing them this year and then write it up next year. But I can't put any of their language... Like, I'm not putting my language in it. I'm putting the Gunditjmara language... But I'll be working with Joel Wright to actually get permission to have the subject headings in language and relate, relate to important things throughout it in his language. So it'll be in the front of it. I have got permission from Joel. So it's not me going and looking at a dictionary and putting it in there. So it's for us Aboriginal people as well. But do you see down the track there'll be Aboriginal people speaking fluently or even as a second language well, uh, I hope, I hope. Uh, you know how you, you learn language in high school you remember a few little phrases here and there and if you choose to you go to university to really learn it or you the best way is to fully immerse yourself in language stop speaking English altogether that's something that's very difficult to do right now in modern society so what I started to do was put little notes all over the house um, for little things, food, water, or I'd say, good night, my daughter. Uh, or if we'll message when she's not home, if she's at her father's for the weekend, we'll message in language. So little things like that are stepping stones to being getting used to using it every day again. So that'll be a long, long process that, people use it every day. And that's the problem with language, revival languages. They sleep because they're not used every day. Uh, but once you, like sometimes I actually <laughs> struggle. I can't remember, like instantly, like in my brain, I think, oh, I know the language word for that animal. What's the English one again? Like, and that's a good thing. 
because you want to have that language name first or you'll drive around and you look outside and you'll say, oh, what the language name for the clouds or the sky or the plants? And you just randomly just say it out loud rather than, right, kids were sitting down doing class at home of language. We tried that. It was like, nah, this is like school. I'm going to stop it. Or you play games, uh, animal um, games, where or it's called alien cards. You get this picture. I think you may have seen it once at the trust. I did it. And you get an alien picture with four eyes and two heads and stuff like that. And you say to the, could be kids or adults, that you're going to draw what I tell you and I'm not going to use English. So you go through the body parts, say what they are, and then your body language helps as well. And they've got to draw it. So if they draw exactly what the picture you're referring to and it's the same, that means you've explained it really well. The If it's completely different and wrong, then my explanation of, the body parts was way off. So that's a really good way to learn body, body parts. So it's small steps forward, but you've got to keep them consistent steps. You can't sort of stop and go, oh, for, you know, just forget about thinking about what the language name for this and that is. You've got to keep going because subconsciously, especially with Dana, my oldest one, I thought, ah, oh, she's not really interested in language, but then she'll come out like just random any time of the day. She, I could hear her say a language word. I'm like, yes. <laughs> I've gotten into her head. <laughs> Where Kaya just flies with it. She loves it. But Dana is a bit more introverted, I suppose, and doesn't sort of go out there and say, hey, look at me, language. Mm -hmm. She's more, she knows it, but uh, yeah, it's sinking in. That's all I wanted to do is just to get into their mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you're writing songs, how do you go about it with the melody and the structure? and What I've kind of learnt over the years with a lot of the language songs that I've heard or um, Dr G, his music and how he pronounces the words with the beats and stuff. I don't really listen to the the guitar and all the modern kind of instruments in his songs. I hear the, the beat in it and um, so and how he doesn't just sing straight, he sort of stops and then does a little chant and then stops again. I love that kind of structure. So when I'm writing a song, I'll just sort of do the beat and my voice just goes in whatever way it goes, but then all my songs are starting to sound the same. And when going back to Tandarum with the dancing, the finale dance needed a little cue for the dancers. So they were telling me that it was a 4-4 beat or something and I'm like, I don't understand that language, don't even... I, have no idea what you're talking about. You can tell me all day and I'll still be like, Ugh. so how I sort of do it is I imagine how I'm doing the beat is how the, the people will do their feet, how the dancers will do their feet. Um, so in the finale dance, we needed some kind of cue in there. So there was one clapstick beat that enabled them to, in their head, write, this is when we're going. And that's kind of how I do it. I suppose I, I imagine what the song would be. I have I can imagine this bit should be fast, this bit should be slow. I don't really know the melody as yet, but I try to focus on, on the feet movement. Yeah. And then Kaya on the other side of that will change the tune to be longer or slower, where mine was like, as you've heard, is just like, just belts it out. But I've tr I'm trying to change in my head the tunes. So it's not like anything else, but I'm trying to steer towards more of that chanting kind of music. And with that William Barrack song, it's 
quite simple and short, but it's it's sung in the round or whatever you call it. And it just sounds really good because it's just that simple, like goes up and then it goes down and then up again. So that's what I want to try to aim for is that kind of simplicity, but it sounds really good. Mm -hmm. mm. It's quite easy to find dances, like there are lots of dances that perform, but there are only so many people that will put their hands up to sing. Are you doing things to encourage other people to sing as well? Uh, do, do people get to learn when they go out bush to the, do these ceremonies? Do they sing along? Well, I'm, I'm encouraging them to sing along while they're dancing. Mm -hmm. But the funny story is, is because the girls were younger, like a lot younger when I started. So I was the adult and I sang and um, it's funny, I can't sing in English, but in language, it comes from somewhere else in my body. And I stuffed up completely one night at a th some ceremony somewhere in some town hall. And it was about eight o'clock at night. And I know after about six, if I haven't eaten something, I go a bit dembin. <laughs> I just like, ah. and I warned the girls. I said, look, I might stuff up tonight because I'm so tired and all this. And I completely stuffed up. I did the wrong tune to the wrong song. So they just have to keep dancing and not pull that face, that grimace, mm -hmm. like just keep going. <laughs> and my youngest came in and said, Mum, I'm so angry at you. You stuffed it up. And, uh, and I was happy that she was angry because it means she puts everything into it and she's really prideful of what she does. And I said, oh, it would be really handy if someone helped me sing and stuff. So since that day, she's helped me. And because I'm so busy, there's just sometimes I, I just know my brain isn't clicking over at the speed I want it to click over. So she steps in and she'll get up and sing the Jitty Jitty song or, or stuff like that. So... Yeah, I think also with the, the new dance members, when we do that entry dance where we call out Nagaji, or it was always just me, I've made them, they've got to call it out. So they, you can see them singing the songs as well. So it's all of us singing. And I noticed that up in Sydney, a lot of the young girls were singing along with the song. It just makes it more powerful. So they know all the songs now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, rather than like you and me sitting here and we're teaching each other a song, by actually doing it, they learned a lot better. Yeah, right. Mm. All right. Well, just before I let you go, is there a place where people can learn Wurrung language or any any Kulin languages if they're, they're here and wanting to know more? I think the only way that you could get access, because it's not online for a reason, if the communities choose to release an app or some stories digitally, then that's a freely available and you can learn the words. So uh, for Woiwurrung, there's three creation stories available on the app store under the Victorian Aboriginal Corporation for Languages. Uh, one of them's like why the koala doesn't drink water, how the platypus was made and um, why bats are black. There's three of them. Uh, Gunditjmara have a few digital storybooks as well, Gunai as well. Uh, Watharong have or Wadawarung have a language app but if they can't find anything like that digitally available they have to contact the land councils because I, I, I've lost count of how many people have asked me can I learn Wadawarung, can you teach me, come, come and do lessons. So what I've had to do is just do language awareness workshops when I was at Bakul and teach them all of those protocols and the processes and general information about language. I don't teach it. Because, yeah, I want to empower the community, my community first and then they choose what they want to share. Mm -hmm. So hopefully soon, one day, they'll release a, a phrase book that's available to everyone or if they choose, they can just release it to their own 
families. Either way, it's, a, it's something that's started to be created to make language use every day again. Yep. Yeah. Just from your time out in the community teaching, is there something in particular that you find that people don't know generally that might be a little bit frustrating? Um, a lot of people that I've come across think there's one Aboriginal language. Um, art is another one. Uh, they think that we're X-ray and dot art style down here. And I think the most frustrating thing is when referring to Aboriginal culture in southern states, it's always majority of the time spoken about in relic and past tense. A good example of something that was changed was at Pound Bend in Warrandyte. It had all these signs. Um, one of the word things was like a, a bygone era, like really old like language that was used on these signs. So people reading it would go, oh, Aboriginal people used to live here or this was traditional land or Wadanjeti used to own this blah, blah, blah. So happily that they have been removed and they worked, the councils and Parks Vic worked with me, my brother and a couple of the elders, I think, to create a self-guided tour, but it had most relevant content, the art style, the plants that were around the area, there's activities on there for the kids to, like how many uh, of these kind of plants can you find or what tree can you make a boomerang from and stuff like that. It makes them go, oh, so Aboriginal people are still here. So that's one of the major frustrations. They use past tense all the time. Mm -hmm. mm. Just a question. Uh, sorry, I, I have numerous questions still, but only so much time. What would be a guide for someone wanting to know when it's appropriate to either yeah, have an acknowledgement mm. or whether it's necessary to get someone yeah. to do welcome? I think a lot of organisations do acknowledgements just in their general speech and that's where it becomes robotic. Acknowledge your elders past and present. Mm. Some add, oh, and future. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like good. Uh, in my case, I get asked to do welcomes all the time, but I say, no, it's an acknowledgement as part of, of the dance performance or an acknowledgement. Someone asked me, who was it the other day? Um, the Electoral Commission in Parliament House. Oh, can you come and do a welcome? I said, I won't do a welcome, but I'll talk about the significance of leadership and, and all of that stuff. So they want to have that included in their events and things, and they, they're just not sure of that the protocols of elders or, or non-elders like me doing it. Um, but I think if they truly want Aboriginal input in their programs or a, like ahead of, like past that welcome, then they will engage on a much deeper level. Like I just came back from DHHS and they want to launch some artwork next year, but they've they already said, I've already got an elder to do a welcome and a smoking. So they, it's up to them how much engagement they, they want past that tokenistic um, little speech. Mm. So I think it's important to have an acknowledgement in some form, but I think that full acknowledgement, you don't necessarily have to have the smoking or whatever, but an elder is really important to come and talk about because a lot of the elders do their welcomes in terms of the location or the importance of some sites around here or organisations that have been involved in Aboriginal issues. So they tailor their, their welcomes to accommodate that. Um, 
yeah, much better than just a, a quick one at, you know, the CEO of a company says acknowledge because they don't get that mm. uh, cultural connection there, yeah, to pass that tokenistic hurdle. Yeah, yeah. Mm. All right, so are you saying that only elders give Do welcomes, welcomes? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I wouldn't do a smoking, um, but I know my brother does the welcome. He's actually an elder and he gets his sons to do the fire. So I think that's completely fine. But if, say, his sons would do, do a welcome and, a, and the smoking, that wouldn't be all right because they're not elders. Mm. That's my, my um, how it sits well with me. An elder has to do that welcome. Right. Mm. But in other cases, an acknowledgement, because I get, like I said, get asked to do a lot of acknowledgements, but it's mainly part of the dance group. Mm. Yeah. And at what point do you feel that you would, being elder, how would you know? To be honest, I don't really want to be an elder. Okay. Um, growing up with a lot of hurdles, um, I think the next generation of um, elders as such, I'm quite happy to just sit back and do what I'm doing. I don't want to have that title um, because sometimes that title may get to a few people's heads and I want to stay meek, mild and humble and do what I'm doing. But yeah, it's quite interesting because you seem like a go-to person for a lot of cultural knowledge and a very important keeper of stories and culture. It seems like you would be an ideal candidate being a, an elder representative of the mm. Wurundjeri. I'm, I'm proud and happy to be a representative, but yeah, I just don't think I like that title for myself. Others really love to have it. I think that may stem from my upbringing. My mum was a very religious person and they had elders um, and they had people called pioneers as well. And I just thought, we're all the same. You're putting these people up on a pedestal and it's a hierarchy that I didn't feel comfortable with. Uh, and the pioneers were ones that would go out and, and preach a certain amount of hours a month um, knocking on doors. And they were looked upon as much better Christians. And I didn't like that. Mm -hmm. So if people can take me as who I am without that title and see um, me as that cultural person or whatever, I'm quite happy with that. Okay. Yeah. That's quite interesting. All right. Well, thanks so much for having a bit of a yarn. And if people are wanting to have you for an acknowledgement or have a Jiri Jiri dance group along to perform, mm -hmm. how do people get in touch with you? Uh, we're on Facebook, um, or you can just Google my name and it comes up with all that stuff. Yeah. Um, or bundles-country.com uh, has got a, a lot of links on to the dance group, to the art stuff. Um, yeah, but if you put my name into Facebook as well, yeah, it's all there.